Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying BC the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Yes, and also please don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Hey, Erica, what's up? I'm good. Half vaxxed. How about you? Also half vaxxed. And we got our vaccines on the same day, right? Our first dose. We did. We were totally Fauci ouchy buddies. Fauci ouchy buddies. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Super excited. I can't wait to get my second dose. This is just a step closer to the crazy travel plans that we've made recently. I know. (laughs) Erica and I did a crazy thing and we, well, we decided a long time ago that after the pandemic, we were going to go to Liverpool. Like that was going to be our thing because you've only been there for like a couple hours, right? Yeah. Two to three hours. We saw the Beatles story. I have a vague recollection of seeing the model of the Cavern Club and that's like all I remember of it. It's really weird. Ah, yeah. I mean, it's a great museum. Love the Beatles story. But yeah, so we were like, okay, we've got to go back and do it properly. And we really wanted to do Beatle Week. Beatle Week is on as of right now. So we decided like, fuck it, we're just going to book accommodations because I feel like that would be the thing that fills up the fastest. Yeah. And somehow we found this really rocking, like, perfect little flat not an airbnb but it could be sort of like that just like really up the street from the cavern up the street from matthew street around the corner it's perfect location and so god please jesus let us travel yeah. let us be able to go <laughs> yeah we'll we'll know what like july or so for sure because i think that's the cutoff date for when they'll be putting out non-refundable tickets for Beetle Week, and we'll know more about the state of vaccines and travel internationally. But as long as all goes well, we will be in Liverpool for the last two weeks of August, which, if we play our cards right, should coincide with our 50th episode. So yay! Yeah, we're really excited. Yeah, I've been looking at flights. I decided I'm going to try to treat myself to, like, one of those fancy, like, lay down flatbed things because I've been saving up my points for my credit cards and I'm like you know I haven't been able to travel for over a year so this is the time to hashtag treat yourself yes do it well very exciting hell yeah I'm so excited so yeah and I am excited to go with you that'll be so much fun obviously it'll be just like a big party about the Beatles in Liverpool like what could be better all the stuff is just uh We'll be catching up with people that we have interviewed and we know from there, and we'll be getting lots of content for the podcast, and we'll be seeing all kinds of crazy stuff at International Beetle Week, so we will be sharing all of those crazy times with you when they happen. Yes, because they will happen. Yes. This this is going to happen. I'm going to manifest this into (laughs) reality. So that happened. Beyond that, though, you know, there's been a lot going on in Beatles you know, the purview of the Beatles, shall we say, you know, Ringo released his EP. Yep, released March 19th. So yeah, just about a week ago called Zoom In. Title track is Zoom In, Zoom Out. Of course, it's quarantined theme. He's not saying it was made in lockdown, but he is saying that it was made (laughs) in his home studio during lockdown between April and October of last year. Well, I mean, you know, he, he can't claim rock down. That's a very sacred expression now to the Paul people. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're going to talk more about Ringo's EP next time. 
I will say, like, if Zoom doesn't get in on Zoom in, Zoom out as, you know, something for the commercials or whatever, they're sleeping on it. They should probably just do that. I'm pretty sure that's why Ringo crafted it. Most likely. Like, plug. I don't know if you watched the Grammys, Erica, did you? I didn't know. Was Ringo on? So Ringo presented Record of the Year, which if you guys, like, don't watch the Grammys, which I don't blame you because they're usually not that great. But that's the big award. That's the final award every night. And so Billie Eilish um, and Phineas won this year. Oh, great. Yeah. But when Ringo walked out, they didn't play like with a little help from my friends or like photograph or anything. They played freaking zoom in, zoom out. And I was like, really? You're going to plug the single? Like, I don't know. It seems like a a weird thing. I'm sure he requested, you know, I'm sure it was all planned and stuff strategically, but I'm like, eh. <laughs> was there any indication that this is a new single or was it just like the background music as if it was Yellow Submarine and we're supposed to know it because Ringo's coming out? Yes, exactly. Okay. It was like that. That's weird. It wasn't like plugged. I know, right? I was like, why don't you play a Ringo song that we know? Like, I, you know, obviously I'd heard it before. So I was like, oh, okay, this is an odd choice for a walkout song, but all right. Because, I don't know, I just don't see Ringo as the type of artist, because most artists on the Grammys, they're presenting or plugging something. But Ringo doesn't need to plug anything. You know, Ringo's Ringo. So I just figured, like, oh, you know, Ringo, a Beatle, a famous musician, like, he's presenting the top award of the night. This makes sense. He's a legend. But it's like, to hear him walk out to his new single, I was like, ah, it dampened it a bit for me. <laughs> no. I don't know. Anyway... <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I don't, I didn't realize I would have those feels, but I was just like, oh, Ringo. Well, we'll talk more about this next time when we go in depth on this new EP. <laughs> okay. I just had to get those feels out. It was strange. I'll just say that. It was a strange moment. And in other Beatle news, things just keep coming and coming. Paul McCartney is putting out sort of another album. It's going to be out April 16th. It's called Three Imagined. And so it's a number of tracks from McCartney 3 covered and reimagined by contemporary artists. So Beck is doing Find My Way. Phoebe Bridgers is doing Seize the Day. Idris Elba, who in addition to being an actor is also a DJ, is doing a mix of Longtail Winterbird. That's going to be amazing. Yeah, right? <laughs> I can't wait to hear what that's going to be like. And the one that we've heard is Dominic Fike's version of Kiss of Venus, which is amazing. It is sublime. Have you heard this? Totally. I didn't even recognize it. It's so good. I mean, the original is good, too. You know, we uh, go back and listen to our McCartney 3 episode if you haven't. We love that track. But no, I mean, it's it's so different and it's so great. It's so poppy. And it's just like... He truly reimagined that song. The collaboration makes it even better. And that was one of my favorite songs on McCartney 3 to begin with. And definitely watch the video through to the end for a special appearance from our friend Paul. Oh, yes, yes. Paul is kind of referencing A Hard Day's Night in that little appearance. Yeah, it's so cute. And then this past week, By My Way came out. Beck's remix, I guess, of it came out as a visualizer on the YouTube channel I thought it would be Beck covering it, but it's basically just a remix. And I was reading a little bit about it, and Beck said that he was inspired to make it sort of an upbeat dancey track because apparently he was out to dinner with Paul and Nancy one night in L.A. And Nancy was like, I want to go dancing before we go home. And so Paul was like, hell yeah. So they went out to a club in West Hollywood, which I love that for them. <laughs> um and Beck said that Nancy and Paul were just like slamming it on the dance floor. Like they were going, like they were high energy, like they were the most like animated people out there. 
so he took that energy and did the remix for this, which I, that's such a great story along with this track. I love that so much. So if you're going to be buying the album, you have a lot of options because Paul McCartney never disappoints with the number of products that you can buy around a single 12-track album. Here we go. So far, I have found that there is the Standard, the CD, the Green Spotify Exclusive, the HMV Gold Edition, the Newbery Comics Red Vinyl, a Target Silver, the Barnes & Noble Blue, and two from Paul's website, which both have a splatter effect on the album cover. It's the only one with a different album cover and the LP inside is either a choice of a splatter art or hot pink. I gotta hand it to them. You know, the different colors for McCartney 3 really were a hot item. You can't get them anymore. You got one. I slept on it because I was like, oh, I'll get one eventually. No. But yeah, like, so I imagine there'll be a lot of people trying to collect all of these as well. My favorite one is, are the two that are on the, on Paul McCartney's site, because they're the only ones that have a really interesting cover to it. In addition Mm -hmm. to the album inside, all the other ones are pretty plain. Like it's just sort of a, a redrawing of the dice with the three, but the one with from the Paul McCartney store is like this multicolor splatter, almost paisley kind of look. It's really cool. So I think that would be the one that I would want, but that has been sold out for quite some time. Yeah, that seems like the pick of the litter. And this is a continuum of how McCartney 3 started with those promotions, those 12 Days of Paul promotions, where there was a giant billboard in 12 major cities with the lyrics printed on them. And then people were encouraged to do covers of the songs before the album even came out. And Paul's people were featuring them on Instagram. And so now they're kind of doing that with the entire album, just with more well-known artists. So that's very cool. I have to admit, when I first heard about it I was just like okay like kind of like eye roll like do we really need this because I thought it would be just sort of like plain old covers basically but the more we're hearing about it the more we're hearing the tracks and the you know the the remixes come out it's like okay this is actually different this is cool I think they really came out strong with that cover of the kiss of Venus because it it is astounding and they're doing something that I'm not really sure Paul can do on his own right now because legacy artists are often not given the contemporary media that a younger or, you know, more current artist is given. So this is kind of a way where Paul's songwriting, which is still just as good as it was, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago in many respects, is able to get out there to a much larger number of people who wouldn't normally think about looking at a Paul McCartney album on its own. They're also making the most of hashtag Rockdown. Obviously, we're still in the pandemic, and it's just another way to kind of like get the music flowing in this time where Paul can't tour, Paul can't do much live. So this is good. This is this is a really good idea. So good job, Paul. Good job, Paul's team. I love it. It's coming out next month. I'm sure we'll be talking about it again because we talk about all things Paul. We talk about all this shit all the time, mm-hmm. obviously. That, that's why you're here, because you love that. You right. love that, yeah. and uh, we love that, too. There's another thing coming out, but we'll have to wait a lot longer, and that's a sequel to Hey, Grand Dude. Yes, Grand Dude's Green Submarine. It's going to be out September 2nd. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that title. Well, I don't know. He's, he's taking ownership over Yellow Submarine, so he's going to have to fight Ringo for, for the cred around the submarine label. This could be the thing that tears them apart. This oh, my could God. Be the, this could be the grudge match for the ages. Wow. Wow. That's why he's doing it. He's just bored in Rockdown, so he's like, I'm just going to start shit with Ringo. It's going to be great. He wants to fight. 
Paul needs to work out some of his anger issues that have been building up. We've created this whole subtext under Green Submarine now that is very factual, I'm sure. And what it really is going to be about, other than all the fighting and the cage matches, is that the book is going to continue the adventures of Grand Dude and his grandchildren as they set out to search for their music-loving grandmother, Nan Dude. Grand Dude and Nan Dude. Uh, okay. okay. So, Nan Dude. Uh, there's, there's stuff to unpack there. Um, why is she Nan Dude? Because Grand Dude makes sense, right? Grandfather, Grand Dude, mm-hmm. Nan Dude. I guess dude is sort of a gender neutral term. And maybe she's just really cool. And she's a dude. Like, she's just fun and she's their nan. So she's nan dude. But my question is, where the fuck was she? Why is she missing? (laughs) She wasn't in the first book. And now she's missing. Yeah. Why wasn't she in the first book? Where's she been? What's her story? Is this like a whole staging because Grand Dude did something super sketchy, but he's kind of got to get out of it. So he's using his kids and an adventure to like, hey, let's go find her. Yeah, I, I think so. I think he's using them to cover up something like definitely a little nefarious. Um, maybe a hint of true crime in Grand Dude's Green Submarine. I feel like this is going to be super sinister between the fighting and the true crime and, you know, the plots. It's, it's going to be really exciting. Yeah. I think we should probably just do another episode of Beatles True Crime on where the hell is Nan Dude. Yeah. To be continued. <sighs> very exciting. On the edge of my seat. Thank you, Paul, for ruining my summer. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, hopefully that won't uh, completely destroy your summer since we are definitely for sure going to Liverpool. I mean, we'll be there when it's released. Ah. That's true. Oh my god. What if Paul does a book event in London? Oh my god. <laughs> okay. I have to reel it back in. He better produce the missing Nan dude though. Now we can confront him live and be like, "Where is Nan dude?" Like make free Nan dude shirts. It's going to be a whole thing. Oh my god. It's going to be great. Um anyway, let's move on to a little housekeeping. And just mentioning again our giveaway, as we do every episode, but go to bcthebeatles.com and enter our giveaway. March is winding down, as you know, and I think we're going to probably just take April off and restock our goodie bag and get some more good stuff for you guys. But this month we've got our magical March mystery surprise goodies. So head over there and uh, you'll see how to enter and get that going. And uh, we'll see you back in May. Magical Mystery May. Hell yeah. Here we go for our next giveaway. And now for today's feature. We are rounding out the end of Women's History Month by speaking with an author who has redefined the narrative of women in the Beatles history. What could be better? We spoke with American scholar Christine Feldman Barrett. She is a senior lecturer in sociology at Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia, and is a member of the Griffith Center for Social and Cultural Research. Her latest book is called A Women's History of the Beatles. It brings a refreshing new perspective to our knowledge of Beatles history, chronicling not only the impact of women on the Beatles themselves, but how the band has influenced and inspired women for three generations and counting. Love it. And we were both talked to for the book, so that was really exciting. She's also the author of We Are the Mods, a transnational history of a youth subculture, which I would love to read. Right? Into the mod culture. Yes. 
and it was the first scholarly book dedicated to the history and global reach of moth culture. Uh, Christine's work has been published in journals, including the Journal of Youth Studies, Space, and Culture, Feminist Media Studies, and Popular Music and Society. And of course, most importantly, she's a lifelong Beatles fan. Yes. And as Christine mentioned to me after our conversation, it's just interesting to look at the Beatles story from the 1960s through now, especially when thinking about women's history during this month. It coincides with many important changes for women in all facets of society. And she said specifically, looking at the 1960s alone, that was a decade when young women were starting to get more actively involved in various aspects of public life, whether for work or for fun. If the Beatles could influence culture and transform it, so too could young women by doing the same in whatever they wanted to. Oh, love that. The book is wonderful. It's seriously a page turner. So have a listen to our conversation with Christine. Christine, welcome to BC The Beatles. I'm so glad you were able to take the time out and talk to us about your new book. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I am a really big fan of it. And my sister and I both talk about how much we love it. So it's just a pleasure to be here, Erica. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks. Well, the feeling's mutual. We met at the White Album Symposium, which I believe was October or November of 2018. I remember seeing you around because you've got style. And I was thinking, <laughs> I want to meet her. She looks very cool. And I'm so glad that we were able to stay in touch after that. And now you have written this fabulous and well-needed book, A Women's History of the Beatles. So before we talk about the book, let's talk a little bit about you. How did the Beatles come into your life? It's funny because, of course, like you, I'm a Latter-day fan. I'm a second-generation fan. I was born a year after the Beatles broke up. I would say there are a series of memories. My sister and I were given the gift of a box of singles that were mostly from the 60s, and there were several capital singles, so the American singles of, I think, Eight Days a Week, Yesterday, Paperback Writer. So those were the first Beatles songs I really remember hearing. And then probably around the same time, this would have been 1975, 76, we went to Denver to visit our favorite auntie and uncle, and they played us the White Album. And so that was probably the first full length and even double album <laughs> that I heard <laughs> of the Beatles music, my sister and I both. So those are two very vivid memories that I have. But again, my sister, she's five years older. Her name's Mariana. And she and I both really got into more Beatles fandom, I guess you could say, maybe around 1978, 79. So I was still very young. She's five years older. So she was an adolescent, but I was still a little girl at the time. But we did our best to find whatever was going on in Chicago that had to do with the Beatles. So we went to go see Beatlemania when it came to one of the theaters in Chicago. We went to Beatlefest, as it was called back then. And my sister even found an ad in a rock magazine, I can't remember which one, it may have been Rolling Stone, where there was an advertisement for people to contribute their own Beatles stories for a book. So actually, 
1982 when that book came out, and that's Mark Catone's As I Write This Letter, my sister and I are both anonymously featured in that book. That's so fun. Yeah, isn't it crazy? So it's something I wrote as an eight-year-old. It's only one or two sentences. There's not a lot coming from me at that point. But I just think it's funny that that was the first thing I ever wrote about the Beatles, and it was actually published. So published at eight years old, first book. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So everything in your life seems to have led to this moment. It seems that way. It's funny to look back on that and see that The Beatles were so important to me then that I had something to say about them in writing. And look what's happened. (laughs) Really? Yeah. And it looks like your career has taken a few twists and turns and music has always been intertwined with your academic career. Yes, I would say so. I mean, today I would say the work that I do as a cultural historian and a sociologist or cultural sociologist is very much to do with the history of popular music and youth culture. So I often, if people ask me how I identify as an academic, I would say I'm a youth culture historian, first and foremost. And music has always been there, whether it was listening to the Beatles with my sister when we were kids, when I got into post-punk music and I was a goth for a while and was really involved in that scene, that music scene in Chicago, or at university, I was going to university outside of Seattle just when grunge really hit. So I was involved with the local music scene there. And I do have a Rickenbacker and I can't tell you the exact model of it, but it is modeled after the original John Lennon 325 model. But yeah, so when I was playing music and I was on stage, I was playing a Rickenbacker as well. That is so cool. And that ties in so well to some of the subjects in your book, notably women taking an active part in not just being a spectator in music, but making the music. And side note, that must have been fascinating to have been near Seattle at the beginning of the grunge movement and been right at that age. I mean, for me, that almost ranks up with the early Beatles as far as being part of an exciting, nascent music community. What was that like? It was very exciting. I mean, Nirvana actually played my university in, I think it was October 1992. And I was very involved with the music events on campus And though I I wasn't responsible for bringing Nirvana to campus, one of my friends who worked in the office did that. But I remember being backstage and having to hold the door open as, you know, Dave Grohl walked in with his snare drum and that sort of thing. Oh, my God. I mean, that's insane. (laughs) I mean, when I tell my students this, because I do teach courses where we look at youth culture and popular music and so on, and they can't believe it. It's one of those jaw-dropping moments for them because for them, those years and Nirvana, for them, I think it's the way it is for us as second-generation Beatles fans. It's that same feeling of just being thrilled by those sorts of bands and those sorts of experiences that people had seeing those bands in their heyday. Yeah, it's probably a lot like a first-generation saying, I was at the cavern and I saw the Beatles. Very, very cool. 
So this melding of music and your academic life, in the beginning of your book, you actually refer to yourself as an ACA fan, a melding of the of academic and fan. And I think that's a really important thing to note because for all of our listeners who I really believe should read this book, it's not just a heavy academic book. It is the type of book that is informative and well-researched and academically rigorous, but it is also a delightful read. I think... It's always nice to read someone's writing where you can tell that the topic is really integral to who they are or it's something that's very important to them personally. So even in rigorous academic texts, if that can come through, the writing is always going to be more enjoyable. And I always look for writing that has that quality. So I try to write that way myself. I'm really glad that it comes through to you. And I've heard this from a couple other people who have read the book so far, that it does have a kind of warm tone to it. So it's informative, but I also want to invite the reader in to the whole experience and try to understand that this is a story that I really want to share. And it's a story with many voices. So all the voices of the women I interviewed, all the women that I heard about through reading memoirs and magazine articles from the 60s, 70s, whenever. I just always really want to invite the reader into what's happening whenever I write something. And of course, being a fan of the Beatles myself, perhaps that just made it easier to do that. What inspired you to write the book? As a female fan, it was really interesting for me to realize that all these books that I was reading, all the information that I was getting, all the documentaries that I would watch, there was a real absence of women's voices for the most part. But for me, there weren't enough voices present to talk about the different kinds of experiences that women have had either during the time that the Beatles were a band or after they broke up and all the women who still were fans after the breakup or came into Beatles fandom like we did in the second generation and now even the third generation of fans. So I felt that it was really time that a book was out there that put into that context of cultural history all these different ways that not only have the Beatles been influenced by women in different ways during their career or had had these different relationships with women, but also the way the Beatles really influenced and shaped women's lives, whether in the 1960s or the 80s or the early 2000s. I thought there were a lot of stories to tell that hadn't been told yet. It feels like such a perfect time for this book to come out. Right now, we're having a moment where women and people of color, people underrepresented through the traditional lens of history, are really starting to be heard and documented. Women are mentioned in earlier Beatles histories, of course, but a lot of them fit into only a few common tropes, so either the groupie or the hysterical fan, usually on the passive or consumer end of history rather than being active co-creators in the narrative. But your book shows that that wasn't even close to the whole truth. What were some other ways you found that women helped shape the Beatles' story? Well, what was interesting to hear from, for instance, the early days when the Beatles were 
a Mersey beat band in Liverpool, that we've heard stories for sure about women at the cavern, but I wanted to bring more nuance to that. And I guess I wanted to try to share some different kind of, kinds of stories about that. And what really struck me was that certainly ground zero was the cavern, but all around Merseyside, the way that young women were really going out of their way to travel everywhere that the Beatles were playing. And we have to remember, I think as contemporary women, it's hard to remember that back then, well, we can't remember, we weren't there. But if you look at the history, we have to remember that young women were not really as free to go out and about everywhere, especially at night, to go out and about on their own or even with their friends. And so I love this story of freedom and independence of these young women who, mind you, did not drive most of the time, did not have access to cars, right? And so they're relying on public transportation. They're sometimes walking for you know, crazy distances to get to a point where they can get a ride or a lift somewhere to see the Beatles. So I love that determination of those early fans to support the Beatles wherever they may be playing around Merseyside. So the cavern certainly, but I love that narrative of being so determined and not caring if you're quote unquote allowed to go out to these venues to see the band play, you're going to do it by hook or by crook. And so that was really fun to think about. And certainly I'm not saying that the male fans weren't around, they were definitely there, but there's this intense exuberance, I think that comes with looking at the female fans during those early years and that they really were the ones who were forming fan clubs, who were wanting to promote the Beatles as best they could. And then there are also the fantastic stories early on of Mona Best, Pete Best's mother, who really not only says to John and Paul and George, hey, you need a drummer for Hamburg? My son can be your drummer. But then she goes on to promote them through what she calls later Casba promotions. She really wants the Beatles to do well. She's the one who calls the Cavern, first of all, to get them their first gig there. And so I think Mona Best probably hasn't gotten the kind of attention she deserves in terms of being this savvy businesswoman, this entrepreneur who really is vying for the Beatles to do well. Certainly she has a personal investment too, since her son is in the band at that point. But you know, she didn't have to do that. She didn't have to put all that energy into promoting them and she did. And certainly we can talk about Astrid Kirscher too, when the Beatles go to Hamburg and her influence on having the Beatles see things, see the world in a much different way. And I know a lot is talked about her in terms of being an influencer in terms of their style, but really just opening the Beatles' eyes to this different kind of way of moving through the world and seeing the world, I think that's such a fascinating story as well. One thing that came through in the way you told the story of the early Beatles fans is that those women were so strong. Completely the opposite of that, that old trope of just weak women, you know, swayed into fits of fainting at the sight of the Beatles. 
These women were entrepreneurial, especially the teenagers who took it upon themselves to start their own fan chapters and, in some cases, engaged directly with the Beatles, with Brian Epstein, with Victor Spinetti, for example. And those activities did a lot to support and promote the band. Yeah. As we go into the Beatlemania phase, so the worldwide success of the Beatles, we see more and more of those kinds of stories where women are looking at the Beatles as these incredible role models, too, where they think, wow, you know, these are four guys who came from a city perhaps a lot of these young girls had never heard of before. Maybe that was the first time they heard Liverpool as a place, right, was in connection to the Beatles. So they weren't even coming from London, which is a city they probably would have heard of before, perhaps. But these really young girls, these adolescent and teenage girls in places like the US, Australia, you know, much of the Western world that gets bombarded with Beatlemania, young women are seeing them as these excellent role models for doing something fun as an adult, right? Having this kind of creative freedom. They're doing something they love. Of course, it started out as a hobby for the Beatles to play music, and then it becomes their career. And that's a lot of people's dream, right? Not necessarily to become megastars, but to do something you love. And for women, I think that was a significant message at the time, just because not a lot of women were even going to college at that time as undergraduates in many countries. Not a lot of women were necessarily thinking of having a career that would last their whole adult life. Some women were, but they were in the minority in the 1960s. So it's a really transitional time where young women are just starting to think, okay, well, maybe there's a bigger world available to me out there than I thought. And the Beatles become that pivot point for them. They become this portal into all these different ways of thinking about themselves in the world. And that's what I found so exciting about doing the research, really, and talking with women who did those sorts of things in the mid-60s. And the variation in the kinds of inspiration these women got from the Beatles was very interesting. Some were personally inspired to have their own careers that had nothing to do with the Beatles. Then others became journalists, for example, after writing music columns in their local papers. And then you had other women who made the Beatles their career, like the woman who started Beatles Tourism in Hamburg. But some of the most interesting stories you told were of the female musicians who had music careers all their own. The nursery rhymes in Sweden, and most interesting to me at least, the Liverbirds, the all-girl Merseyside band, stood out the most. Now the Liverbirds, they were contemporaries of the Beatles who wanted to play their own instruments and not just be a girl singer, which was primarily what women did if they were going to be in a band during that time. They wanted to play their own instruments, and they were even told by John Lennon himself that girls playing guitar just wouldn't work out. They had a lot of success in their own right in the 60s, but they are virtually unknown in the Beatles story as we know it. There are many male contemporaries that so many Beatles fans and historians can rattle off the top of their heads, like the Big Three or King Size Taylor, but really nobody even knows about the Liverbirds. Can you talk a little about how these bands came to be, and why is it that they don't appear as part of the standard Beatles history? First of all, in terms of the Liverbirds, I was 
really lucky to be able to contact Mary McGlory, who was the founding member of the band. She's the bassist. And then I also spoke with the drummer, Sylvia Saunders. Those are their maiden names. So it's Mary Dostal and Sylvia Wiggins. It was very fortunate that they agreed to connect with me. And what was lovely to hear from them directly was, again, this idea of being part of that music scene in Liverpool in the early 60s, but going to see the Beatles play and just thinking not only, wow, do I love what they're doing, but I want to do something like that. I want to do exactly something like that. I want to perform with my friends. And so I'd like to have that be all my girlfriends playing with me in a band. They were determined to do it. And I think that comment from John Lennon, of course, is so important in the story. And in fact, in Liverpool in 2018, at the end of 2018, there was a musical production all about the Liverbird story. And it has that title, Girls Don't Play Guitars. And I asked them, I said, well, what was that about? You know, did that really upset you or did that bother you that John Lennon said that? Because, of course, you were fans of the, the Beatles and here you get to meet John and Paul and that comes out of his mouth. Was it upsetting? And they both said, no, you know, it, if anything, it spurred us on. It was a provocation and we just thought he was being a bit cheeky or, you know, and they also said that they remember Paul McCartney saying something along the lines of, oh, I think that's great. I think it's great to have an all-girl band. But it's interesting to think about when you remember that actually John Lennon's first music mentor and the person who first taught him to play anything on a stringed instrument was his mother, Julia, who taught him banjo chords. So I put it into that perspective of, oh, you know, it was probably just a flippant comment to make in that moment. The beautiful part of that story, though, is, as I said before, it spurred them on. They said, right, we will form a band. We are going to do it. And then next thing you know, they're playing in Hamburg at the Star Club, where the Beatles have played their last Hamburg performance. They're being managed by a German manager there, and they're touring all over Western Europe. And eventually they went to Japan as well on tour before they broke up. So they had quite a nice career going. And then the nursery rhymes too, they form as a result of two women meeting at the Stockholm airport where the Beatles arrived for the beginning of their 1963 tour. That was October 1963. And again, I had the pleasure of interviewing Marie, the lead singer of the nursery rhymes, and Again, it was that moment where they're there because they're curious about the Beatles. They're fans of the music already. They think, oh, this is interesting. But she said there were probably only about 12 people there. It was really interesting because she happened to meet someone who not only was a fellow fan of their music, but wanted to form a band. The takeaway of that story was the Beatles brought these two budding female musicians together just by starting their tour. You know, that was their first big tour outside of the UK. So I think it was even before they went to Ireland. So that was a big deal that they were playing in Sweden. But again, you know, only some people in the know knew that they were arriving 
in Stockholm that day. And so Marie happened to be one of those people, but it led to her having a very lengthy career in music herself. So again, it's, it's, it's so nice to see the Beatles as this point of inspiration. So it's not just being a fan of the music and loving the music and thinking all the members in the band are so interesting, but for the Liverbirds and for the nursery rhymes, the Beatles become that point of departure for really important things in their lives. That feels like a theme that runs through the community even now, that we all meet and bond at concerts and fests or symposiums like we did. I think you described it as a fan family in the early days in Liverpool, when the fans were actually personal friends or acquaintances of the Beatles. But that feeling became a defining characteristic of this fandom even now. And I think it's a huge reason it keeps growing 50 years after they broke up. What do you think it was about the Beatles themselves that fostered this feeling in a way that other huge fandoms like Elvis or Frank Sinatra may not have? Well, I think you're right that that origin story of the Beatles in Liverpool and at the Cavern, perhaps in particular, that community that coalesced there, it had that familial tight-knit community feel to it, for one thing. And then also, I think the reason that I wanted to focus on the Beatles' friendly relationships with their fans in Liverpool was to show that different type of boy-girl dynamic, because I think it always gets so focused on, oh, girls like the Beatles because they find them attractive and they're so cute and blah, blah, blah. Of course, that's part of it. But Less has been said, except I think in the past, the big exception would be Astrid, but they don't really talk about those sort of friendships that formed, even if they were more on the acquaintanceship level, like you would have in a music scene, right, between the bands and the fans. But those were really nice relationships that they had. They really showed that they cared about the female fans, and they would go out of their way oftentimes to get to know them a little bit, to share the exciting news that was happening about recordings when they first started recording Love to Do and Please Please Me and all that. I really wanted to foreground those kinds of experiences because I think it says so much about why the Beatles did resonate further down the line with their female fans as well once we get into something like Beatlemania and everything that follows after that. There's something that comes through the Beatles in their songwriting, in the way that they conducted themselves in interviews, in all the media that circulated. They always just seemed respectful and thoughtful about women in a way that I think we don't often see even to this day in rock music. So. What I wanted to say before you had asked this, and I realized that I didn't answer this question, I wanted to say that one of the reasons I think that women bands got written out of these stories around the Beatles is because the whole sort of narrative that's developed around rock music culture has been really that male story about the rock star. And even though women have been as we can see, performing in rock bands since the early 60s. The people who were documenting that history and wanting to write it didn't really care about including 
that part of the story. It wasn't deemed as very important because the story of what was going on with the guys was just way more important in their eyes. And maybe they couldn't relate. They didn't know how to approach those kinds of stories in their writing. So, I mean, there's a lot of academic literature now that talks about this issue of masculinization of rock music. But what's interesting about the Beatles to me is that the Beatles actually are not at all about that. They are very much in the way they they write their music, they write their lyrics. They're very inviting to everyone, male, female. They don't exude this kind of macho aesthetic that comes out later, for instance, in the 70s. That's a lot more obvious in rock music. But in the Beatles, who we still, many people hail as the best rock band of all time, we don't see that. We see a lot of conscientiousness on their part to be inclusive. And so women are certainly included in the fun. And I think that's why later generations of women fans, they can sense that and feel that and connect with the music just as well as the women in the 1960s could. That's a really interesting point. And for us now, having the benefit of seeing their evolution after the Beatles, especially John's and Paul's, like John's opinions about feminism definitely evolved as he met Yoko. Paul and Linda were collaborators in so many ways. So the Beatles weren't just inclusive from the start. They continued to evolve and keep women in the loop, so to speak. I'm so glad that you brought that up about John and Yoko and Paul and Linda, because there you really see it coming to the foreground, that attitude to women that only becomes more so, like you said. I think a lot has been said before by other people about John Lennon. Maybe if we don't want to call him a feminist per se, he definitely became an ally to those ideas and to Yoko's part in talking about feminism, especially in the early 70s. So yeah, I mean, I think on one level, as I said before, they were always conscientious about the women around them. And that comes out in pretty much everything they're doing. But yeah, by the end of the Beatles, as the Beatles are splitting up, how wonderful is it that John and Yoko are working creatively together? And same with Paul and Linda. They're not just partners in life, but partners in creative endeavors too. And so some people obviously didn't like that, but I think it says a lot about them, about John and Paul as men, you know, that they were really wanting to have that sort of partnership at that time with their wives, that it could include making music together, for example. It really feels like they were putting their money where their mouths were. They were authentic about how they came across to fans in those early days, and then they confirmed that in their personal actions as they got older. Personally, part of the reason I feel connected to them is because they really did treat women with respect before it was common and expected to do that. And with respect to Linda and Yoko, they did it in the face of a whole lot of pushback. As you were writing this book and speaking to all these women, what were some of their opinions about Linda and Yoko? And how did those feelings change across generations or with the benefit of hindsight? Yeah, I mean, there were a few people who, who shared with me what their feelings were, for example, towards Linda when they were 
young, when they were adolescents or teenagers at that time, for instance, when Wings would have been touring. And their opinion wasn't necessarily a glowing one, right, of Linda, but they also talk about how those views changed as well, you know. And in fact, I did hear from someone that they really loved the way that I wrote about Linda in that particular chapter, that they thought it was interesting to see how I put that together to talk about women's views of the different partners that the Beatles had, especially, well, I only focused on the partners who they met through the 60s, right? So I don't really go into talking about Olivia Harrison, for example, even though she's a fascinating woman and um, there's probably a lot that somebody could write about her. But yeah, I just wanted to be really authentic about different reactions that people had as fans to the women who came into the Beatles' lives. But I think it was interesting, too, that there seemed to be a generational shift around people like Yoko Ono, particularly, that the younger fans that I interviewed anyway, and of course, this is no hard and fast rule. There are probably second generation or third generation fans who still aren't fans of Yoko. But in my experience, outside of doing the research, I've found that a lot of younger fans really like Yoko a lot. And that also came through in the interviews that it was a little bit split along generational lines. Not totally, but I could definitely see some of that. I mean, if you look at Viv Albertine's memoir, she's a punk musician who is in the band The Slits. She's technically a first-generation fan, so she was an adolescent when the Beatles were big, and she talks in her memoir about loving Yoko. So there were definitely first-generation fans, not necessarily even ones that I interviewed, but there definitely are first-generation fans who had more positive views even then in the 60s, and the late 60s, about Yoko and Linda. But certainly there were stories emerged that I hadn't even heard of before about Linda being given a really hard time by, say, some of the Apple Scruffs, and that there was even a fanzine that they circulated, and there would be a little bit mean, satirical sketches of her and things like that. I had never heard that before, so that was news to me. But I think a lot of the negativity towards, for instance, Yoko and Linda, that was coming more from the mainstream press, more so than, for instance, the female fans at the time. That says a lot about the power of the overarching narrative in shaping public opinion. Another perspective you presented in the book was that of even less often heard from groups of fans, like women of color or members of the LGBTQ community. How did their stories expand the book's viewpoint? Well, I don't know that they're vastly different, but I wanted to, for instance, with the LGBTQ fans, I really wanted to give them a little bit more attention in the book. And I wish I could have written more. I wish I would have had more interviewees who came forward and self-identified in that way so that I could have more of a, um, a fuller picture there. But it was important for me to write those what I did about the fans that were not, say, white and heterosexual, because that seems to be the stereotypical image of the Beatles, female Beatles fan. So 
What's interesting is this goes back to thinking about my sister's first Beatles friends as a teenager, because quite a few of them were lesbians. And one of her good friends in the Beatles community in Chicago was black. And so my sister and I have talked about this before, saying that, yeah, you know, why hasn't anyone really talked about the diversity of the fan base in, in those sorts of ways? And certainly we see more of that has come out in recent years, for instance, with Ron Howard's documentary, Eight Days a Week. He does interview Whoopi Goldberg and um, Dr. Kitty Oliver. And so he does try to bring some Black women, women of color into that discourse and into the history but there are many more of those stories, I think, that people haven't heard. And so I just wanted to bring in a bit more acknowledgement of, for instance, the African-American experience of Beatles fandom. And certainly I think there's a whole lot more that can be written. And as I always say, this isn't the definitive book of a women's history of the Beatles. I think probably there are many other books that can be written about the diversity of the community. I think my main goal was to show the fandom over the three generations. So I really wanted to show that lengthy period of time where women have been engaged in the Beatles story in different kinds of ways. So that was the main goal, but I did try to bring in at least some sense of diversity. And my sister also wanted to have me tell you that she really loved the Pride episode. Oh, thanks. Because it made her think about her first Beatle friends and that they weren't all straight girls who were just talking about how cute Paul was or something like that. And again, it's not to say that the straight Beatle fans are just talking about how cute the Beatles are, because as I said, there's much more going on than that. That's definitely a stereotype as well. I think on that episode, which was last June for last year's Pride Month, the two women on the panel had a pretty in-depth conversation about their feelings of the Beatles' attractiveness and how that influenced their fan yeah. experience. Yeah! The Beatles' community is so complex and multi-layered, and it's so refreshing to hear more perspectives. Absolutely. And I appreciated that conversation, too. And a little bit of that also came out in an interview I had with a woman musician who's been a Beatles fan since she was very young and saw them on the Ed Sullivan show. And she was saying something quite similar to what your interviewees said about that. So yeah, I thought it was great to bring in just more diversity, more variety of experiences. And I wish I could have done even more than I did, but I'm glad that we can talk about the diverse kind of fandom that's been out there this whole time. Did anything surprise you as you were researching the book? Well, one thing that was really exciting to discover was how involved women journalists were at the beginning of the Beatles career. So most of us who are Beatles fans have heard of Maureen Cleave, but she's pretty much the main name in terms of women journalists who promoted the Beatles early on. And she was, of course, writing for the Evening Standard in London, and she was really the first person writing for mainstream press that was saying, look, we, we've got to pay attention to this band from Liverpool. So she was writing these amazing articles about them. But there were a whole host of other women journalists who were also quite young at the time. They were about the same age as the Beatles. And they were writing for 
NME and Rave and all these magazines based in London. So you had people like Don James, Nancy Lewis, and a bunch of others who were also interviewing the Beatles and writing for these other magazines. So that was really exciting to discover because the way that we think of rock journalism today, or at least how we thought of it for a long time, and especially as related to the Beatles, we don't think of young women as being super involved with that, but they were, and they were some of the first to really be writing about the Beatles and all these other bands that were just breaking out at that time. So that was a fascinating discovery, I thought. It seems like there are a lot of women in the current moment who, just like the journalists you just mentioned who were contemporary to the Beatles, they come into the fandom with a real spirit of entrepreneurship. And those people have done a lot to expand the scope of the fandom and in some cases create entirely new products and even industries out of it. The one who comes to mind especially is Stephanie Hempel, who practically single-handedly started Beatles tourism in Germany in the early 2000s. I cannot even believe that it took that long. And also some of the female performers who are taking the Beatles catalog and making it their own, like the one you wrote about who calls herself Lady Beatle. She sounds amazing. Her show sounds incredible. I know she's based in Australia. Have you ever gotten the chance to see her? Yeah, uh, Naomi Price. And it's actually a one-woman musical, right? So it's sort of cabaret theater that she's put on here in Brisbane and she's toured all around Australia. But she is, she has a backup band, but she is performing 30 Beatles songs in the show. It's a musical, so it has a storyline as well that goes with it. And she's interacting with the audience as she's performing. And yeah, it's incredible. And she has, as you saw in the book, she has a connection to Liverpool herself. So she's, she's British but lives here, but has these strong ties through her father's family to Liverpool. And so it made it also a very personally, very important kind of project for her as well, as she describes in that chapter. So yeah, there are all sorts of interesting manifestations of this Beatles fan culture that women have been active participants and producers in and of, right? So they're they're active fans, but they're also producing these new exciting things like tours and performances, musicals, and uh, bands who are still really influenced or musicians who are still really influenced by the Beatles, like the Mona Lisa twins as well. There's definitely things going on here and now where women are actively wanting to promote the Beatles' legacy. Now, this question may require too much generalization to answer. Okay. Um, but how do you think women's contributions to the Beatles' history are different from their male counterparts? It's hard. I mean, I don't like to go all essentialist about, you know, women's experiences or uh, men's experiences. I think what I wanted to show with this book was just we need to pay more attention also to what women have been doing within the whole culture around the Beatles, because for whatever reason, and I think it goes back to just the way Beatlemaniacs were documented in the early days of Beatlemania, that what women were doing was somehow inconsequential and not worth 
writing about, you know, unless it was in some sensationalized way, like, oh, look at these crazy girls screaming for the Beatles. That was the beginning and end of this kind of documentation. So this project has really been about not saying, oh, well, we don't care what the men were doing. It's more so as it is with all women's history projects to, to say, hey, look, maybe you don't know about this, but this was going on. Women were doing this in the 1960s because of the Beatles or in conjunction with their fandom. And we've never heard these stories. So for me, it's always been more of a project of discovery and wanting to showcase these experiences that women have had because of the Beatles. So I think that's it more than anything. I don't know. Obviously, there are some things that are going to be different, but certainly um, male and female fans share in their love of the music and the love of the personalities. But I just wanted to, to really highlight what women have experienced in all these different ways. Because again, I think those stories have not really come to the forefront as much as they should have been or you know could have been emphasized and highlighted so that was my job as a cultural historian i guess with this project was to make sure that people had more information about the impact of the beatles in this one particular way it's so fantastic that you were able to write this history and add so many women's voices and stories to the narrative is there anything else you'd like to mention that we haven't covered I guess I just want to say to anyone who's listening right now uh, that there are so many more stories to tell, I think, about the Beatles that haven't been written yet. And for anyone who really has that desire to engage with the Beatles story in an in-depth way, I think it's a good thing to do. And I think there's always going to be an audience for these stories about the Beatles that we're hearing. So I'm very grateful to all the women who are willing to speak with me for this project. And I'm really thankful for them and for the Beatles. And I feel that my experience of the Beatles has also been enriched by doing this project and by meeting all these wonderful people in the process. I urge everyone listening to pick up a copy of A Women's History of the Beatles it's truly fascinating. Christine, where can people find the book and where can they learn more about you? The book is available through your usual channels online and it's through Bloomsbury. So you can also find the book through their website, but certainly all the usual online booksellers. I do have a website through Griffith University, so you can learn more about what I'm doing there. But other than that, I'm on social media and so on. So anyone who wants to get in touch to learn more about the book and the project, feel free to contact me. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Erica. We will end as we end every episode with our obsession of the week. Allison, what are you obsessing on today? So I am super excited about the re-release reissue of the Plastic Ono Band. It's one of my favorite John albums. I think it's highly underrated. I 
just went back and listened to it for the first time in a while. It's kind of one of those where I pull it out every once in a while and then I'm like obsessed with it for, you know, two weeks. But I've been really, really enjoying John Lennon's socials. Shout out to that team because they've been posting some really cool, you know, photos that I've never seen. They posted one, I think about a week ago or two weeks ago of the Plastic Ono Band, loosely termed, but it was of Alan White, Eric Clapton, Klaus Foreman, and John and Yoko, and it was them just sort of relaxing poolside and flashing some peace signs, just casual, you know, some of John's drawings, some of the promotional materials for Plastic Ono Band. I really love seeing that stuff because I don't think people really talk about that period of John's career enough, probably because it was just after the Beatles broke up and all the Yoko hate was unfounded obviously but it was still pretty widespread and of course they've been posting product images of the box and I've been seeing people you know unbox the box on YouTube and around the socials and it's just so cool I'm really excited to dig into it when it comes out and I think we've been spoiled with all these reissues obviously of Paul Swimming Pie last year and um, you know this Plastic Ono Band box looks effing great so yeah, I've been really excited to see, you know, every time they post, I'm like, yes, what is it? <laughs> I know it's nerdy, but it is, it's very cool. And it's sort of sparking my John love, which, you know, John's my favorite Beetle Beetle. So it's great. That sounds really good. When's it coming out? It is coming out on April 18th and you can pre-order it now. Nice. We should do an episode about that. I don't think we've done anything on John's solo catalog. And considering what I was talking to with Christine about Yoko and, you know, new perceptions of Yoko, it might be really fun to look at this album in light of that and, you know, think about, you know, perceptions then versus perceptions now. Yeah, absolutely. And Yoko is such a presence on this album and some of her tracks are my favorite. Like I go back to her tracks a lot. That would be awesome. I'm always down to talk about Yoko. Me too. We need more Yoko, obviously, on this podcast. Love it. Absolutely. So move on to yours because I'm curious to hear more about this. The well of releases and things to buy and pre-order from the McCartney family never stops. And I recently found out that there is going to be a new version of Lynn McCartney's cookbooks. It's going to be released June 29th, and it's called Lynn McCartney's Family Kitchen, Over 90 Plant-Based Recipes to Save the Planet and Nourish the Soul. So it is going to be a cookbook featuring a collection of Linda's best-loved recipes reimagined for the modern cook. Paul, Mary, and Stella will bring Linda's kitchen up to date, reinventing her best-loved recipes for the plant-based cook alongside their favorite family stories and the dishes that they now eat at home. No pun intended, I'm sure. That wasn't about food. Oh. Ew. No, not ew. It's, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's okay. Paul had said about this that years ago, before anyone had woken up to the idea of environmental and health and animal welfare issues, Linda was blazing the trail with vegetarianism, telling people about it and promoting it. At home, she would cook for the family, and these recipes have been now brought up to date for a modern audience, so they're all now plant-based and fabulous. I like plant-based, and I like fabulous. So that's great. That's great. And this is just one of the products in an effort to continue Linda's vegetarian legacy in the family. Of course, she has her vegetarian foods line that I think mostly is in the UK and Europe. And Paul, Mary, and Stella started Meat Free Monday in 2009. They published a Meat Free Monday cookbook in 2016. 
And Mary herself has a cooking show currently on Discovery Plus called Mary McCartney Serves It Up, where she references Linda and Linda's recipes and her legacy quite a bit, too. So it's all kind of part of this package. I'm super excited. Linda's cookbook was my first exposure to vegetarian cooking. I was very young and was not able to make those recipes at that point. They were hard. (laughs) You know, they were hard. And it's not only that they were hard because she was a, you know, she was a good chef. She used a lot of ingredients. They're not like basic recipes, but also because back when she was doing this, getting meat substitutes and things that kind of had that texture of meat to replace what people are missing in order to get them interested in switching over. The hole in the plate. Yeah, filling the hole in the plate. That's not quite, that's, that's a little bit different in the way we think about vegetarianism now, but I think that was a very smart way to frame it in the beginning when people weren't used to this. But my point is, is that those meat substitutes were just not available. There was no Beyond Meat. There was no Impossible Burger. And so she was making them all from scratch using something called textured vegetable protein, which is hard to get and hard to work with. And it is a disaster if you don't know how to deal with it. So I think that they're going to be updating it for the ease and convenience that we have now and probably also a more holistic look at how you can have a vegetarian diet and it doesn't just mirror meat eaters. Yeah, they're calling it plant-based. So I've got to think that some of this, a lot of it, maybe will be vegan as well. I would think so. I know Stella's vegan. I'm not sure if Mary is too. Paul, I think, is vegetarian, but I'm sure that if they have influence, they'll be using you know vegan ingredients as well. So very exciting. I can't yeah. wait. If you're interested in us doing a Patreon channel and me cooking my way through this cookbook, a la Julia and Julia, <laughs> let us know and maybe we'll consider that. I would love that. I would <laughs> I would buy that tier for myself just because I would want that content. Love it. Yeah, I'm interested because, gosh, so back in the, over the summer, I think, I was cooking a couple of Linda McCartney's dishes that were in the Fleming Pie box set. So I cooked a couple of like casserole type things and they were both really good. But the thing about Linda's recipes is that it's always like add like two sticks of butter. God bless. Because that's a very British thing mm. is to add like a lot of those fats and oils and, and that stuff to kind of like you know build up the recipe but it'll be interesting if there is some vegan aspect to this if if that'll be uh substituted also i just remembered um we were talking at the top of the show about mccartney 3 reimagined and watching the beck visualizer on youtube in the pre-roll for the beck video i was served an ad for a mcdonald's crispy chicken sandwich so um not okay (laughs) There was that, which I was just like laughing out loud. I'm like, oh, fucking course. I got served an ad for like this chicken sandwich before a Paul McCartney thing. Don't they know? Jesus. I know. It was on the Paul McCartney channel. I'm like, that's crazy. (laughs) I mean, they must know I love a McDonald's crispy chicken sandwich. So maybe it's tailored to me. They care more about what you like than what Paul likes, I guess, in this situation. That's not right. I'm not as important as Paul. Come on, YouTube. Like, let's get our priorities straight. Even I know that. (laughs) They need to indoctrinate my brain with, like, fake chicken. Fake chicken is not bad at all. I don't think I've had it, but maybe I'll try it. Really? Well, you're going to have to get this cookbook and try out a couple of fake chicken recipes. Oh, shit. (laughs) Well, I'll do that. And, um, yeah, I guess until next time. 
Thank you for listening to Because the Beatles. As always, subscribe to us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now. And please give us a rating review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. Remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com, too. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.